0: Let's turn to Acts chapter 5 this morning. There are many things that we could cover in this passage, and I've just pulled out basically one so that uh, we can have some idea. There are, as I said, way too many things to cover just in one session. But there's one idea that I want to address, which I think is appropriate, uh, especially in this day and age, and perhaps even in this week. And the question is, who will we obey? Who will we obey? So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the Word of God? me, yeah. Father, we ask that your Spirit would come upon us, that we would have insight and understanding to who you are and how you call us to live because of that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through the... Uh, The end of the chapter. And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them, however, the people held them in high esteem. All the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Now, let just stop there and get a picture of this. There are so many people wanting the Lord, Lord to work through the apostles who are doing signs and wonders that that they didn't have time to get them all, so they just simply laid out there hoping the shadow of Peter would fall upon them and heal them. Verse 16, and also the people from the cities and the vicinities of Jerusalem were coming together bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, "'Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life.' And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple by daybreak and began to teach." Now when the high priest and his associates had come, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside." Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, "...we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us." Peter and the apostles answered and said, "...we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on the cross." He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, "Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men." For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, and he was slain, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose, after this, a man, Judas of Galilee, Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. And so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. It's so interesting that, that an angel comes and frees them, um, when the Sadducees and the, and the chief priests and everybody had put them in prison, and those people didn't believe in angels. Uh, they, they had no, no, no cause to care about angels or believe they were in existence, and yet the angels come and deliver, them, deliver the captives out of prison. And you can see that they come, and the doors are locked, and the guards are there, but the inmates are gone. <clears throat> now, we have all been at that moment in time, whether we remember it as a child or with our children or with our grandchildren, <laughs> when what we have learned is right comes face to face with our will. Don't touch this, Dad says. Okay, Don't touch this. And you, you think in your little mind, if you're a child, you're thinking, well, Dad has always been right okay, about these things. And he's never let me get hurt. And mom has always told me things that have kept me safe. Now, I don't know if if your four-year-old mind is thinking these things, but but go with me, all right? They've lived their lives without touching it. They have been safe all their lives. They seem to be happy without touching this, which they have said not to touch. But there's this little voice within us, you know? It says how really cool it would be to touch that, (laughs) Because, you know, mom and dad, they're just all stick in the muds anyway. They don't know what fun is. And I think in my heart of hearts that they just don't really want me to enjoy everything that I could enjoy by touching that. And there's the issue. Will we obey mom and dad or will we do our own thing and obey our own desires within our own hearts? Well, there's another moment in time in our lives when all of those around us are doing something Within our heart, we know that it's wrong, but they're all doing it, okay? And they're all going that way, or they're all doing the same thing, and there's a part of us that so longs to go and do that with them, but that other part within our mind says, I know that's wrong. Whether it's as a teenager, and it's all our friends doing it, or even as an adult. The question is, will you do what everyone else is doing, or will you do what is right? Well, there's one more moment I want to address. It's no longer just your uninformed teenage friends wanting you to go and do something stupid or your three-time divorced golfing buddy who's trying to tell you how your marriage should look. Okay. Now it's the move of society telling us what will now be classified as the norm of acceptable behavior. It's now the federal government telling us that you have to pay for certain things that you abhor but you have to pay for them. They go against your core beliefs. Now it's the world looking at you and your ancient religion and all your pettiness and ignorance as how you believe these things and telling you that you were out of step and you should not have any say in what goes on in society because you are too tainted by your small mind and this thing you call religion. What will you do now? As a teenager, you just faced getting kicked out of your peer group. As teenagers, we thought that was terrible. Because we so desperately wanted to be individuals, so what did we do? We dressed like everybody else or cut our hair like everybody else. And we didn't want to get kicked out of that group. But as an adult, the consequences are far greater in obeying what is right sometimes than going with the crowd. Perhaps will you as the owner and founder of your company write a check to your insurance company to pay for things that you absolutely hate and can't stand? If asked in public, and you know this happened, if asked in public uh, where you stand on marriage, will you give an honest answer even though it may damage your business? Will you do that? And if the burgeoning view within the ivory towers of academia begins to take hold within society, and that view is burgeoning within those places, let me discuss Define that view for you the view that Christianity, specifically and religion in general, should be treated like a virus, something that infects society and needs to receive a strong dose of a secular antibiotic. And anyone who holds to those religious views should have no place in determining how society functions or is structured that's the view if this view should prevail will you move to the dark corners of life and practice your faith or will you boldly remain in the center and say this is what is right and i can do no other the question from our passage that we're going to deal with is will we obey man or will we obey god those are our two options two options and this question, I think, for, for generations within this country has been a little bit more hypothetical, okay? In this past week, we watched the, uh, the biography of uh, John Adams and the forming of the Declaration of Independence and all that was structured around that time. And so often, they stood so, so adamantly that our rights and our liberties are given to us by our Creator, And no human institution can give rights. They are granted innately because we are human and our Creator gives us these things. Yet as recently as the last two weeks, individual men and women, as well as religious institutions, have had to stand in obedience to God rather than in obedience to man. Because God is right all the time. Man is right not all the time. And they willingly face the consequences of such a stance. We know that the Roman church, as an example, is in a lawsuit with the government over having to fund sterilizations, abortions, things like that. Things which run counter to their very core doctrines. Okay, Very core doctrines. We know that the owner of Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy, made a statement. And that statement was, I stand with a traditional view of marriage. And, and, And boy, was there a stink about that. Now... I'll ask, how many of you went to Chick-fil-A on Wednesday? Okay. A lot of people went to Chick-fil-A on Wednesday. I hope you s- stood in line. <laughs> Suddenly, the mayors of cities say, Chick-fil-A does not hold the values of our cities. And city councilmen said, you know, we can't have that kind of value in our city. And, of course, the mayor of Chicago said that. And then the next day, he welcomed with open arms Louis Farrakhan, um, Apparently, his particular type of hatred and vitriol is welcome in Chicago, but Dan Cathy is not. How many of you heard Dan Cathy when he came to, and spoke in town for the young business leaders? Okay, oh, he was fabulous, just fabulous, just the way that he understood commerce, the way that he understood faith, the priorities that he put, and, and you know, after speaking for 40 minutes, he picked up his trumpet and played the Lord's Prayer, and it was Pure. It was pure, I want to tell you. Will you obey man or God is no longer an academic question in our society. It's not something that we have to face on a regular basis, like if you were a believer in a Muslim country or under communist or a dictatorial rule, but it is here. And in what seems to be an ever more possibly secularizing society, each of us must have a theological base on which to stand. And a spiritual backbone, we've got to have this to say, I will go this far and no farther. I will, be, I will not be stifled when it comes to living out my faith, no matter what the consequences. I will resist any effort to be forced or coerced to do things that run against my core doctrinal and theological roots and basis. We have to be ready to say those things. No matter what society says. No matter what society says is right. No matter what society says this is the proper place for you who are religious, or you in particular who are Christian, go in the corner and be quiet. That's not what God says. So the question will be, will we obey man or will we obey God? Now, my friends, I am not Chicken Little standing here saying the sky is falling, okay? And life is going to end unless we stand boldly and do these things. What I'm saying is this passage Challenges us ahead of time to figure out where that line is for each of us to find out where we will stand and what we will give on and what we will not give on. God says that this will be a reality in every believer's life at some point, whether it is a small thing or whether it is a life and death thing. Depends upon your culture, depends upon your setting, depends upon the period of time in which you live. But it is better to have an answer of where you will stand prior to facing that issue or prior to being forced to make a choice. Because if you wait until the, in, the issue is right before you, then you'll end up having to think fast and not having thought through this. You very might likely become like the frog in the pot. okay? And you slowly... The temperature is slowly raised and before the frog knows it, he has boiled himself because he adjusted to the temperature around him. And if Christians don't decide, well, this is where I'm going to stand. This is, you know, this is as far as I'm willing to go because this is what Scripture says and I must obey whom? God, not man. If you become like that frog... Then you'll be so acclimated to society around you that you won't see how it changes. You won't see the problems that arise, and you'll begin to accept those changes as part of your life, and you will think that they are part simply of the Christian's life. And those who are making a stand and saying, I'm going to obey God, I'm not going to go along with man, pretty soon you'll begin to look at them like, that's the fringe element. Okay, Those are the fundamentalists, or those crazy people that, that they won't give an inch because you have given so much and you have become room temperature with everybody else, just like that frog. And believers are standing over here. Obedience to God sooner or later will put you at odds with a secular society. It's just the way it is. Now our passage this morning follows the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and we've looked at them, okay? God struck them dead as an early warning against the church, against the deadly sin, in particular, of hypocrisy. Let's look at verses 12 through 16, just for an instant. This is what happens after God strikes them dead for hypocrisy. And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Okay. Many signs and wonders, and as I alluded to, even the shadow of Peter. People were so enamored with that; so it was so powerful that they were willing just to have the shadow of him fall on their those who needed healing. One accord in Solomon's portico, it's an outgrowth of the temple complex, and it's kind of a covered place. And people gathered there to to talk and to interact, and sometimes uh, speakers or rhetoricians would get there. But often we see the churches gathering there as a great place to present the gospel. Verse 13. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. None of the rest... Loosely translated, anybody who even thought they were a hypocrite didn't want to have anything to do with the early church because they were so concerned that they would be struck down for their own hypocrisy. Now, that doesn't preclude the church's growth. Let's read a little bit further. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. What did we find? At first, there was 120. After Peter's sermon... 3,000 were added to the church. After that, we've got you know, numbers. 5,000 were added. The numbers are so great that Luke doesn't even list them anymore. Okay? The church has grown to such a degree that Luke simply says, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out to the streets and laid them on cots and pallets. So when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities and the vicinities of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were being healed. This was the work of the early church, this power of the early church. Go back to 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Literally, it it says there, were added to the Lord. Let's say added to the church, added to the Lord, added to the body of Christ. The body of Christ on this world was growing and was maturing and was expanding by God's will and purposes. The English word for miracle here comes from the Latin miraculum, which means something to cause wonder. Can you imagine if this was happening today? And there's Peter. And he walks by, because the sun's always out in Huntsville, and he walks by and his shadow goes over you. And whatever, you know, I've had this pain back here for about three weeks. Okay? And as I sit... It, you know, it, it tightens up, and when I get up, I have to walk like this for a little bit, and then it loosens up, okay? It'll go away. Isn't that the way men think? It'll go away in a couple weeks, right? And, and Peter walked by me, and I went, wow, I feel good. And I, and I see that his shadow had passed over me. Do you, can you even, I, I can't, because it, this doesn't happen today. But try to think of the power that, that is available there. Think of what would happen to the church today if that went on but that was in the first century as the gospel was going forward and as it was a, a confirming sign of the power of the gospel message for the apostles to, do, to be able to do those things. The apostles were obeying God, and he was acting through them. Our Heavenly Father was acting through them. But there was still a price to be paid for choosing sides. Now the Jewish leaders rose up against the apostles and put them in prison. Let's look beginning in verse 20, uh, verse 19. But an angel of the Lord, during the night, opened the gates of the prison, taking them out. He said, go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. And life is in capital... In, in, in this Bible, that is the Christian life. That is the life that Christ calls us to live. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. So this was sometime in the middle of the night. They didn't stop for breakfast. They didn't stop to get anybody else. They went right to the portico of Solomon and began to teach these things. That is the life that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, when the high priest and his associates had come, they called the council. And they're just, they're really upset I mean, these guys were in prison. How'd they get out? How did this happen? And as we saw earlier, the doors were locked, the guards were there, but the cells were empty. They could not obey man. They had to obey God. Peter states this in verse 29. Because they're brought back. They're they're corralled again and brought back before the same group and said, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom, and he reminds them here. See, he gets a chance to preach to this same crowd who puts him in prison. And he reminds them, you put him to death. God raised him up. We've seen this before. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The message of the gospel. And we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, what happened? They were offended. It says here, cut to the quick. Remember, the gospel is offensive. We can't remove the offense of the gospel because it is innate within it. Because people who are in darkness love the darkness. Love the darkness. Remember, why didn't you understand the gospel or or the message of Christ for so long, however many years it took? Because you love the darkness. We all did. And then the light of the gospel of Christ comes upon us and opens our eyes, and we see these things. So we have the intervention of Gemma here, and he says, hey, if it's of God, there's nothing you can do. Don't worry about it. Send him out. So just as a reminder, they beat him a little bit and then send him out. And what did they do? Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were unstoppable in their obedience to our Heavenly Father. Why was this? A lot of reasons. I just pick out two. They had a fear of the Lord's holiness. They had a fear of the Lord's holiness. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. Right at the end, Sapphira is struck dead by the hand of the Lord as well. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. This is not just a fear that they might be struck dead if they lied, but this is a fear of God's holiness. Because hypocrisy was an offense to the holiness of God. They had a fear of his holiness But the church was growing by leaps and bounds. Multitudes of men and women were coming and added unto the Lord. Faithful obedience, not watering down the gospel, or working to be more in line with our temporal society. They said the hard things, they did the hard things, and the church grew. Multitudes were added day by day. Now, many fail to note that the apostles performed great miracles, and as I said, the angel came, and the Sadducees didn't believe in angels and released them. But we see in here, and we see in plenty of other places, that even faithful men and women will often pay the price for their obedience to God rather than men. We see they were in prison. We see that they were flogged. The Lord doesn't say, go preach the gospel and I'll protect you in all cases. Now, yes. Paul was out on the mission journey. He was out on the edge of, of society. He stuck his hand in the in the uh, bunch of wood and pulled up, and he had a snake hanging from his, his arm. It was a snake. It was basically a two-stepper. He figured if you were bitten, you had two steps before the poison got to you. And what does Paul do? He shakes it off, goes right on. Everybody is shocked at this. Sometimes the Lord will protect us. But understand, I think the vast majority of the time, the Lord says, if you will obey me rather than men, there still are consequences that you have to face. They were flogged before they went. And where did they go after they were flogged? Right back to preaching the gospel. That's what they did. Okay? We see that um, Paul was in prison, that uh, Trophimus was not healed, that Timothy was not healed. We see these things go on and on. Great men and women of faith have struggled with physical ailment all their lives, but yet they have been obedient to the Lord, to the Lord. We have to be ready to face the fact that it is not always his will to deliver us from illness or persecution or in some cases even death for following his will. Secondly, the obedient will obey God rather than the civil authorities when it comes down to a question of who is right. Now, we are called to obey the civil authorities, Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, up until the point in which they diverge from Scripture. When they come and say, you have to do this, and we read in Scripture that says, no, God says I have to do this, we have to do what God says. And no matter what the consequences are from our civil society or civil government or those issues around us, okay, even if it results in our being punished. Now, Christians disagree over when civil disobedience is appropriate. There is that freedom of conscience within the Christian life. You are required to act when your conscience is sufficiently pricked by Scripture and by the Holy Spirit, not when mine is. You must stand according to how you have been enlightened and your mind revealed to the things of Scripture. Then you stand, and stand uncompromisingly when you do. So if the government said that we could not meet in a church, they went and closed all churches, what would you do? Would you come here on Sunday? What if they had guards outside? Would you still be here? Oh, we could meet in our houses. Oh, we could do that. Your your conscience has has to live with what is appropriate. What is appropriate. And when God says you must do this over against what man says. Thus, obedient Christians will fear God's holiness. They will obey him above anyone else. Now, there are plenty of of other texts in Scripture that deal with civil disobedience and this kind of thing, obeying God rather than man. You've got the midwives in uh, the first chapters of Exodus. You've got Daniel in the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. You've got um, Queen Esther as she goes before the king. Remember, she has to save the Jews. So she has to approach the king, and nobody's allowed to approach the king. It has to be the king that calls you. And if she shows up and the king doesn't dip his scepter to her, she's dead. Well, she shows up, he really likes Esther. He says, come on in, what's the story? And the Jews are saved by her, basically, civil disobedience. Now, civil disobedience by believers is a theological issue has nothing to do with politics. Please don't ever think that I would tell you how to believe or how to vote or anything like this. Civil disobedience is a theological issue. And when your mind is filled with the things of Scripture, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you are, are in steeped in this, then you will know when you, what you have to do to obey God if man says to do this. Now... The apostles, as they walk out of prison, have not done anything in this area in what they've faced for personal gain. They're not engaging in any violence in doing it. They weren't verbally abusive. They didn't walk out, calling the Sadducees and the chief priests, any names as they left. They didn't destroy any property when they did this. They weren't advocating any political point of view. They were advocating Christ. And they said, I have to follow him. I have to follow my Heavenly Father. Their motivation was the gospel. We must speak about Jesus because obedience to Jesus Christ comes above every other consideration in our lives. We must obey God no matter what the consequences might be. And they did this as an act of civil disobedience. They were gentle, they were compliant, but they stood firm. And all we have to do is turn the page or two to find... That sometimes civil disobedience results in death in the story of Stephen, the first martyr, who said, this is the gospel, and this is true, and what did they do to Stephen? They stoned him. And the Lord in a, you know, didn't stop the stoning, but he did intervene in Stephen's life and give him such a, a mercy at that time that basically the heavens opened for him, and he was at peace even in the midst of those things. Friends, I... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it might mean for us. I just know that, that the scripture says, Obey God and not man. Where will that happen in your life? Well, it might happen tomorrow. Okay? And understand you will probably bear the consequences of that in a civil fashion. But there are blessings and strength and protections that do come in obeying God rather than men. Let's pray. Lord, you have placed us here in this country, and for so long we have just rejoiced in the protections and and the freedoms that we have. But Lord, we know that there are missionaries that we know and support, there are friends that perhaps live in other countries, there are believers in every nation in this world that have to choose every day who they will obey. And, Lord, their lives are a struggle. And some days, Lord, you offer this special protection to keep them safe, but they know that they're willing to face the consequences for their actions, to obey you rather than man. Make us wise in this application, Lord. That as we walk through our lives, we do not make small compromises that go against the things of Scripture just to get along. But we are willing to stand uncompromising on the things of Scripture, but yet stand there gentle and confident that this is right and this is how we are called to live, no matter what the rest of the world says. Or come and inform each of us to our own lives and where we apply this and how we will stand. Lord, that in that stance and in that confidence you are seen and the things of Christ are proclaimed and his gentleness and compassion are demonstrated in how we respond even to the punishment that we might face. But Lord, let us count it a joy to be persecuted for the things of Christ if that should happen. Lord, it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Our hymn is two hundred fifty four near the cross. Let us stand and sing two hundred fifty four.